I'm Jody Vance with you, uh, as I said, for the remainder of the week for Mike Smith and also in next week as Mike takes a bit of a break. Um, no slow news cycle over this holiday period, traditionally a very quiet time. It is not. And we are so grateful to Dr. Brian Conway, the medical director at Vancouver Infectious Diseases Center for taking time out of uh, his uh, schedule to yet again pop in here for the next 30 minutes. Dr. Conway, thanks for doing this. Jody, thank you so much for having me back. Okay, I want to start with something that was causing rather, um, I don't know, hysteria. It was causing people to just be so frustrated, be so angry. At yesterday's briefing, when Dr. Henry was speaking to uh, new case numbers and testing and how our testing clinics are maxed out, our labs are maxed out. So the number that is delivered as new daily new case numbers, uh, she said it's likely, you know, four or five times that. And people were like, what? This is the first I've heard of it. In my mind, I was like, well, didn't we talk about that back in July of 2020 at one of the first serology, serology briefings? Can you unpack that a bit for our listeners so we can understand uh, how we're watching this science evolve? Well, what's going on right now is that we are reserving testing by and large to individuals for whom knowing that they have COVID is going to make a difference going forward in terms of more careful medical follow-up, requiring specific treatments, potentially requiring hospitalizations and the like. We are ignoring asymptomatic individuals with respect to testing. We are telling people who are a bit younger, have no comorbid conditions, have relatively mild symptoms, and a likelihood of just riding this out without needing to see a doctor. We're saying, stay home, call your contacts, and just ride it out. So that probably represents more people who have COVID who are not having testing than those who are being tested. So I was thinking two, maybe three times normal. I think, you know, she's saying, uh, uh, not normal, the number of cases that are reported, she's saying four to five times. But it is there are two to three times for sure more people out there with COVID than are being reported in the daily numbers for the reasons I've just said. All right. Questions are already coming in for you, Dr. Conway. I uh, want to open up the phone lines. We are going to do this for 30 minutes to the bottom of the hour. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 is a free call on your cell phone. 604-280-9898. If you have a question about, well, anything related to COVID-19, Omicron, or our BC pandemic uh, situation where we are in this chapter. I got one by email even before uh, even before the news to 9 o'clock. Lori was on top of this. She says, Jody, can you ask the doctor how long symptoms last? I'm on day eight, uh, finding for the last few days, the symptoms sort of ebb and flow, feel great. And then it hits me again. How long should I expect symptoms to last? On average with Omicron, we're seeing symptoms for several days. So it's shorter than Delta or the ancestral Wuhan strain or any of the other variants. That being said, there are a number of people who may have longer symptoms, sort of uh, bordering on long COVID. And there are people that might have another infection on top of COVID, be it influenza or one of the many respiratory viruses that are around, and that may make things last longer. If you feel that you're slowly getting better, that's fine. If you feel that you're getting a little bit worse over days, then you need to see a doctor. 
Okay, a couple things I want to ask you about there. When when you go from okay, I have symptoms or I've had a positive test, one or the other. Um, and then you're you're going through the process of okay, if I've been vaccinated, it's seven days I must isolate. If I'm unvaccinated, I go ten days of isolation um, from my positive test. If you're still symptomatic, say I'm fully vaccinated and still symptomatic after seven days from my positive test, can I still leave isolation? Is 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 it, or should I continue to isolate until my symptoms are completely gone? Ideally, we should be doing another test if tests are available. At the very least, you need to consult a healthcare professional, a doctor, a nurse practitioner, or someone to evaluate your specific situation and whether it's safe to discontinue uh, isolation at that uh, at that point in time. But it really the seven days, ten days in the U.S. now, five days, uh, and so on. That assumes that a person has no symptoms. Okay, so and then the, I've got a lot of people doing this right now, saying I'm feeling under the weather. Um, some are saying, well, so I'm just assuming it's COVID. I'm not going to go get tested because I, you know, I'm not too bad. It's good. I'm going to monitor. I'm healthy. I'm young. I'm vaccinated, whatever. Um, and then others are like, oh, uh, yeah, I think it's just a cold. It's not COVID. I'm going to just go about my, my business because I've gone and had a test and it came back. It was an antigen test from a testing clinic. It came back ne- negative. So therefore I do not have COVID. So the difference between common cold and COVID with COVID, you are going to feel generally sick. What is that? Fever, headaches, pains in your muscles, really not being able to get out uh, of bed and function for any length of time. You're going to be potentially coughing, maybe short of breath. Any combination of those is probably COVID. If you have sore throat, runny nose, scratchy throat, that sort of thing, uh, you know, it probably isn't COVID. But what we're being told by Dr. Henry right now is if you have those symptoms, it might still be Omicron because it causes more mild disease and we haven't figured out if it's going to cause something that looks like the common cold very often. And we're asking you to just isolate for a few days until you're better uh, and assume that you had COVID. So we're in a bit of a, of a gray zone on that, but that's the guidelines that I advise people to follow when they ask me on an individual basis. We know that Omicron um, is causing more breakthrough infections in people who have been vaccinated. But some of the things that we are learning is that particularly people who have two doses of vaccine on board, who have been fully vaccinated, regardless of how long ago that was, are much more likely to have milder illness or asymptomatic illness if they do get infected. 604 280 star 9898, a free call on your cell. Your questions for Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Dr. Conway cannot be overstated, can it? The uh, importance of vaccinations here? This is the key to the future. I think everyone should get their shots as soon as they are made available to them. And I would invite those who have chosen not to get their shots or who are uncertain to ask all of the questions they need to ask to make them feel more comfortable about getting vaccinated. So much information that is just being bent and twisted and a game of telephone. I just got an email from Darren who says Pfizer info is the subject matter. What do you know about Pfizer trying to hide the ingredients of the vaccine? I'm fully vaxxed and waiting for the booster, but a friend of mine informed me of Pfizer trying to hide information. No information uh, to no, no data to support that statement at all that I've been uh, made aware of. This has been the most transparent process that I've seen in my history 
as an infectious disease specialist. As products get developed, this has been under the microscope. Everything is out there, every side effect, every possible issue that might impair the efficacy or safety of the vaccine has been shared with the general public. All right, let's go to Jamie in Burnaby. Thanks for hanging on the line there, Jamie. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Um, I had a couple of quick, quick comments here and a question. Um, with kids up at university age, son going to university here, is there some sort of strategic plan in terms of, you know, um, what happens when we have infected, you know, kids living, living in groups of 30 with, you know, one bathroom, et cetera, um, you know, with no rapid testing or the lack of rapid testing and testing taking so long, is there some sort of, you know, provincial or a local authority plan moving forward in terms of what we're going to do once these kids get back on campus. And then if you just want to comment also on uh, the logic uh, of the Canucks putting 9,000 people in the building this week or next week, and if that actually makes sense with everything else going on right now. Thanks for having me on. Second question first, in terms of the Canucks, my sense is that's being reconsidered, especially in light of attempting to hold a uh, junior hockey tournament, a world junior hockey tournament in the area of Omicron and having to cancel it halfway through. I think that's an issue that is hopefully being re-examined in the era of Omicron. In terms of the issues of congregate living that applies to students and dorms, it applies to our downtown east side, our inner cities and so on, we need to have a better plan. I think that's been sort of one thing where we've done very well in long-term care facilities. We've done less well in dorms and in the inner city, and we need to try and make those two situations align. Just to be to be completely consistent uh, with all of our uh, all of our approaches, and to reassure the public that everything is being done to protect as many people in difficult situations as we can. All right, let's uh, continue down the phone board. Six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight star ninety eight ninety eight is a free call on your cell. Mike and Surrey, you are up next. Welcome to the show, Mike. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, a question. Um, I've heard the question posed a few times, but I've yet to see an answer. So I'm understanding we're firing nurses and or frontline workers that don't have a vaccination for whatever reason they've chosen not to do it. So they don't do it and they're let go. But we now have positive testing frontline workers um, being allowed to go back to work because we have such a shortage of the people that are required to work in the hospitals and, and all of that kind of stuff. I'm kind of wondering where's the science to justify that. So a COVID positive person, yes, please come to work. Somebody who is unvaccinated with zero symptoms. No, you're fired. So okay. I, I think can, I know the answer to this, to Dr. Conway. I, I I'm with you here, Mike. And, and it's interesting because it was yesterday that I first heard as a layperson, what I think answers that. So I'm going to check my, my work here. Dr. Henry mentioned that unvaccinated people with Omicron sh- or Delta shed a greater amount of virus, more infectious to others than a fully immunized person who even might have tested positive for COVID. Is that correct? If I was given grades, I'd give you an A, Jody. I mean, there's a difference between being unvaccinated and sick and being vaccinated and sick. And that really is the gist of the, uh, the answer to this particular question. We don't want unvaccinated people in workplaces where they could transmit the infection very readily, possibly to uh, very vulnerable individuals. We would love to have a very, as safe a work environment as we can. And this issue of 
having people who have COVID and who are vaccinated come back earlier compared to what we would like to, according to these uh, these uh, periods of time of, of 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 isolation, is really meant to try and preserve our healthcare uh, capacity. And it's a difficult decision to make. And if we choose to make it in British Columbia, it will be done in as safe a way as possible and monitored very closely. At the first signs that it's not working, it'll be pulled back. And one last email here, uh, somebody who is asking about travel. Some have to travel, essential workers have to travel. There's essential need to get on an airplane. Please, for the doctor, is being in an airplane more dangerous now? Mask types, should we double up cloth? Is it true that Vaseline in your nose protects a bit? Would a shield help? Can I get it through my eye? Uh, probably not through the eye. Vaseline doesn't help. Uh, they will have to tighten up a little bit on the airplanes uh, in terms of enhancing security. They may end up uh, not allowing uh, eating and drinking, I suspect, to try and, and uh, get people to, uh, to really have that mask on the whole time, have higher quality masks. Airplanes have been generally safer than many other things uh, because of all the controls that are in place to let people on airplanes. Uh, but right. uh, they'll have to tighten up a bit in the era of Omicron. Dr. Brian Conway, always a pleasure, sir. Thank you so much. And I will take that, A. And I'm going to continue to study under your tutelage here as you help us navigate what is a very complicated um, period in our lives. I I really do appreciate you. Thank you so much. Let's continue this dialogue. Let's continue this partnership. And until next time. We've done the very best we can. We came up against an opponent that was not on the ice, but that was bigger than all of us. And we gratefully... We've had to cancel this event. That is the Hockey Canada CEO, Tom Rennie. Uh, it was a moment that many sports fans were dreading and yet could kind of feel coming. I know that many of us uh, hockey enthusiasts were texting back and forth and talking about the possibilities here and, and had been speculating about it for sure. I was filling in for Squire on Sports. I talked about it last week. And uh, for weeks and weeks, we've been talking about whether or not the games in Beijing, the Olympic Games, should go forward. I want to bring in a good friend of mine. He is a contributor on Sakaris and Price and a sports broadcaster in his own right. Uh, certainly a good friend and a recognizable face and feature around British Columbia when it comes to uh, broadcast. Scott Rintoul is on the other end of the work from home line. Now, Scott, thanks for being with me. You're welcome, Jody. Thanks for having me on this morning. Tough act to follow with Dr. Brian Conway, but I enjoyed that information session. No, he's such a good guy. He just has a way of uh, uh, just putting into layman's terms the incredibly complex. Now, you and I are going to sort of unpack something a little less complex, but still heartfelt and, and hitting us where we live as Canadians. This World Junior Tournament is one that we all look forward to. These kids have been working towards this opportunity once again COVID-19, once again, a global pandemic, ruining our fun here, uh, but in the name of safety. Uh, can you give us your perspective on what you saw unfold leading up to the cancellation announced by Tom Rennie yesterday? Well, first and foremost, I feel badly for those players from all over the world, not just here in Canada, but those families as well that have dreamed of this and have congregated together and we're seeing young men's dreams hopefully being realized that won't be realized. So I feel badly for them. And yes, it is certainly part of our holiday tradition here in Canada, especially with so many of us in our homes right now, whether it's because of snow, whether it's because of sickness, or just because you're gathered for the holidays, it's it's become part of what we do. 
every single holiday season. So that has gone away. Leading up to this, there were plenty of questions, and rightfully so. And the answer was always, well, they pulled it off last year. They were able Mm. to hold this tournament in Edmonton last year, and they managed to get their way through it. It wasn't without hiccups. It wasn't without some COVID cases, but they got through it. Maybe they can do it again. But things were different this time around. Protocols were different this time around, at least as far as the way the double IHF set this up, Jody. And ultimately, the lack of a bubble, which is what they truly had the last time around, the lack of a true bubble for these players, especially at some of their hotels, specifically in Red Deer, is what ultimately compromised this tournament and caused it to be canceled. It is really something when you uh, peruse social media within the area in Alberta where this tournament was being held and people, you know, recounting, we were going back and forth yesterday on this, uh, on on our DMs, on our uh, text message stream, <laughs> people saying, you know, and then players are riding in an elevator with, uh, you know, people who were also staying at the hotel who refused to wear a mask. They said they had a medical exemption and you know, the kid that's with them says, why you got to be so woke when the when the players said, can you put your mask on, please? It's like it, to hold an event such as this, uh, particularly in a time of incredibly uh, widespread community spread of, of what we're assuming is a combination of Delta and Omicron, um, to have a mix with the general public would be risky anyway. Um, but people looking to cast blame here and Scott, it, it's, it's difficult to not because there's disappointment. But at the same time, Um, should we be focused on the blame or should we be focused on the lessons we're learning? Well, there's a lot of blame to go around on a lot of different levels. So if we're going to play the blame game, I'm going to be here a really long time. And we're going to take that to a bunch of different levels, including canceling the women's U18s and not rescheduling those, but talking about rescheduling the juniors later in 2022. Like we can go down blame highway for a really long time or maybe blame Boulevard so we can use a little alliteration. (laughs) Alliteration. What you speak of there, Jody, I think it's important to point out to people the difference between what we've seen before with some of these tournaments and what we saw this time around. And you hit the key component to this, mixing with the general public. If we think back, and it seems like a really long time ago, but it's only about 16 months ago that the NHL conducted its bubble tournament in Toronto and Edmonton, ultimately the Tampa Bay winning, the Tampa Bay Lightning winning the first of their two consecutive Stanley Cups. That was a bubble, a true bubble. The teams that were staying at the hotels, they were the only ones there. They were only going to and from the rink. Players were confined to specific areas, and there was no mixing with the general public. The only other people in those hotels and those facilities were those who were working, and they were all testing all the time as well. They did that last year in Edmonton with the World Juniors. But we've all been living in a world for the past number of months where things have been relaxed a little bit. There's been more Mm -hmm. vaccination. We have all gone to places where there are unvaccinated, vaccinated, people with masks, some people not wearing masks at times. That has happened. So the world in general, and specifically North America, has relaxed. This tournament was set up with that in mind. And what changed is Omicron. And Omicron, obviously, as we know, is so much more transmissible than the previous variants of this illness. And we can talk about the effects and whether they're severe, whether they're not, and and what it means to be vaccinated or not. Bottom line is, it's easier to catch this. But the way they set this tournament up, having players stay in hotels where the general public was staying as well, obviously, there's going to be some contact with people riding in elevators, walking 
in the lobby, maybe in a stairwell or shared facilities within those buildings. That was set up prior to knowing what was going on with Omicron. We always tell mm-hmm. athletes and we always tell teams, you got to adapt to the environment. Well, what didn't happen here is the IIHF adapting to the current environment. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith this week. We're talking a little sports here with uh, Scott Rintoul, good friend of the program. He is a sports broadcaster, of course, and a contributor on Sakaris and Price. And Scott, before the break, we were talking specifically about the World Junior Hockey Championship being canceled, something that, I mean, all of us are used to having this time of year being, that's what we do on a snow day. <laughs> we, we cuddle in with our, maybe a little Baileys in our coffee and watch, you know, the the tournament unfold. So disappointing, certainly for many, we're, talking about how we feel for the players as well. Uh, What might this mean, though, looking ahead to Beijing? I mean, the Olympics aren't that far away. How how do you see this unfolding? So hard to say, because as we know, China is a completely different kettle of fish politically, and that can go down a whole rabbit hole of its own, whether countries that are democratic should even be going to China. But let's put that on pause for a second and just focus on whether or not these games are viable. It's really, really difficult for me to sit here and say right now, they are dealing with things much differently in China right now. The report I saw last week is that basically 13 million residents in in one of the cities are on lockdown. They can't even go out to get their food right now. The food is being sent to them, and this is how they are trying to contain the virus in China, where Delta happens to still be the dominant variant. Omicron has not made its way there in the same way as of yet. But as we know, from a political standpoint, they can impose rules in that country that don't fly so well in the North American society or one that we're used to. They are going to do everything you can to try to pull off these games. Japan was trying to do the same thing with the summer games and ultimately said, we can't do this. We have to postpone it for a year. Maybe it's the same for Beijing and for China, but I really couldn't tell you right now, Jody. I have no idea how they're going to handle this. You and I both know whether it's the World Juniors or the Olympics or really anything going on in in our society right now, it's a conversation about money as much as it is about health. Yeah, and that's where it goes in my mind, because while the Chinese government would have a lot to say about the Olympic Games in Beijing, the IOC is the all-powerful entity when it comes to the Olympic Games. And what we are, I guess, looking at or watching is how the International Olympic Committee might be weighing the risk of public health versus the cost of not having these games go forward as planned. And certainly we did see that in Tokyo. I don't know. How did you feel about the Tokyo games this year? I was slated to go to the games. I had to stay home for, for family reasons and illness in my family, um, as well as COVID-19, frankly, as the essential caregiver for my dad. It was it was just, I couldn't go. Um, and, you know, watching it unfold, you and I have mutual friends who were there and and lived it and delivered it. But for me, watching the even the great moments of sport in that track and field venue, particularly with no one in the stands, I found so eerie. It struck, it strikes me while I loved watching the Canadian women soccer team win gold, you know, like the, it was so, it was so um, push and pull for me. How did you feel about it all? Yeah. Conflicted, I think is the best way to put it with everything that was going on. It's a, it's a good word to use Jody. And I think that describes the way a lot of people felt. And yet these athletes made the decisions, these federations made the decision to go. And 
you can argue with as difficult as it is to qualify for the games and to succeed at the games, this was yet another obstacle. Having no fans, having no other people around, the support system that normally would be there, and yet the Canadian women, Damian Warren, go down the list, they were able to overcome mm. this and accomplish great things. So there's that great positive side of it. Hey, we're willing to adhere to every protocol you put in place because it's important enough to do this. And there's the other side of, boy, you're really putting a lot on the line to try to carry out your dream. There is conflict involved. I was really nervous before it started, and then I was very impressed with how it unfolded. I thought there would be far more um, test case positives or far, far more controversy with re regard to COVID-19. But yet now we're in that Omicron phase where, you know, it, it, it'd be hard. They'd be hard pressed to keep this all at bay. But let's just say they can. Let's just say everything is super bubble boosted done. Is this a place in the space? I saw our good friend uh, James Sabolski actually tweet this out. How about you move the juniors, both the men's and women's, and have them compete at the Olympics in the hockey category? There's going to be some conflict involved in that conversation as well, because as you know, a lot of these players, certainly on the men's side, belong to specific organizations, whether they be junior teams or some of them coming from their parent NHL clubs. And we already know the NHL has said not going to the Olympics this time around. It's a good idea on paper. I don't think it's going to play out that way. In fact, I know Hockey Canada is currently trying to put together its roster right now. We should see a coaching announcement in coming days. I know that they've settled on most of, if not all of the staff for that tournament. And the team is planning to go to a training camp in Switzerland prior to going to China to participate in the games. They are going to use players of Canadian descent from different parts of the hockey world. And much like we saw in 2018, they're going to try to push forward that way without NHLers. I understand the the dream scenario of, hey, put them on the big stage, the juniors, and have them compete for Olympic gold, but it will ultimately be a different scenario if they get to play that tournament at all, and it'll be carried out in the summer if it goes that way. Only got 90 seconds left, but I'd rem be remiss if I didn't uh, bring up the Vancouver Canucks. Now, seven straight wins since Bruce Boudreaux took over behind the bench. Uh, who knows how many games they'll get to play before the season might have to pause due to Omicron, but uh, uh, there's a game in L.A. They're feeling it right now, aren't they? They find a way. And last night, it looked like a lack of finish was going to cost them for most of the game. And then Tanner Pearson scores in the third period to tie things up. JT Miller, great JT. goal in overtime. Surprise, John Gibson didn't come out and get the puck. But when things are going well, these are the types of things that happen. Sure helps that in the six starts, Thatcher Demko has made under Bruce Boudreaux. Yaroslav Halak played the other game. In six starts, Thatcher Demko has allowed just eight goals, Jody. It's unbelievable. And what's unbelievable? The Christmas mask that is now trending on social media with Bruce Boudreaux wearing that behind the bench. Yeah, we'll get that over his nose at some point during right? the game. Can we do as that? Well, but, Thank you. But he's trying. Thank you. He's trying. Bruce, there it is. It's a thing still. <laughs> Indeed, it is. Scott Rintoul, always a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks so much for doing this. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jody. Happy New Year. Before we let you go completely, though, can you tell us how we can uh, hear you on Sakaris and Price? Yeah, they're on a little bit of a pause right now, not with their programming, but with their live shows day to day. So SakarisandPrice.com, you can download the podcast there. You can listen live streaming there as well. And I'm on every Thursday. They're all my favorite dudes all in one 
Room, Sakaris Price, and Scott Rintoul, sports broadcaster, good friend of the program here, and uh, happy to call you my friend. Happy holidays and happy new year to you and yours, Scott. Thanks, Jody. Jody Vance with you and for Mike today and all next week. Glad to have you along. And I want to touch back on a story that we actually broke at Global News and here on CKNW. John Jang actually interviewed um, somebody who we had to disguise their identity. We went with Morgan as his name. Uh, he told us the story of living in an SRO, a single room occupancy hotel here in Vancouver, where there was no heat and had been no heat in the polar vortex. And then more stories emerged. Uh, Romina Day has been working on the story for Global BC, as has Julia Foy. And, and we've had Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young on the program. Uh, we did reach out to Mayor Kennedy Stewart. Uh, we were declined. He said, uh, his comms people said that he was monitoring this from afar. So let me just take you through, before we bring in our guests, let me take you through some of the audio uh, from these stories, just to give you some reference point uh, this is Julia Foy's uh, story on uh, somebody with no heat in their SRO. Have a listen. I've got like five blankets. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I just it's... sleep underneath them at night. The renters say the power went out and the hot water heaters went cold on Christmas morning. It is absolutely important and every one of us deserves better. And why these people can't have heat in an extreme weather situation is absolutely unfathomable to me. Where's the city? Where's the city is a big question here. Romina Dea's story uh, on the Regal SRO. No heat there. Have a listen. I pay $700 a month. Stephen Walsh has a home at the Regal SRO on Granville Street, but he says he can't stay here because there's no heat. The number one thing for a person is a room in heat. If you don't have a room in heat, why are you paying rent? Do we have to stand here with a camera when a body bag comes out? Is that what it takes? And I think the city needs to have a serious discussion amongst the people there that make decisions on if that's their high water mark, because this is clearly their low water mark. As mentioned, uh, we attempted to get Mayor Kennedy Stewart on uh, to talk about all of this. Unfortunately, not available to us. Uh, however, City Councillor Sarah Kirby Young was available. Uh, and we asked about what the city can do what what power might the city actually have here she was talking with us on the mike smith show all systems electrical and heating in all city buildings buildings in the city i should say need to be maintained that heat needs to be able to be on in each room at 22 degrees um, and clearly that's a fail here if that doesn't happen and there's an infraction um, then they can be cited in order um, that they need to fix that the challenge is that uh, then the clock starts ticking and meanwhile people are suffering and a council can only order after 60 days um, if the building owner is not doing those repairs that the repairs are carried out at the city's expense and moved forward. Again, that is City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young making herself available to speak on behalf of the city to try and give us some idea of where the red tape is stopping help from arriving for people who are living with so much less. Below the poverty line is an understatement. Let's talk with somebody who knows this struggle all too well, has come out of the struggle, and is now a peer clinical advisor at the BC Centre on Substance Use. Guy Felicella, good friend of the program. Glad to have you here. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Jody. 
I saw your tweet roll by yesterday and I just reached out to Corey, my producer, and just said, we have got to have Guy on. Talk about what you tweeted out, live, what it's like to live on the streets when it is this cold. Oh, it's just so it's like punishment. It's 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 very challenging. Like, I, I mean, not only do you have to be strong physically to be homeless, but mentally, I mean, you know, that takes a toll on your your just your mindset in life. It's just complete survival mode. And, you know, you go to, a, you know, an extreme weather shelter and get turned away and, and you know, you're outside still in those elements. Uh, you know, honestly, that 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 particular uh, time, it was so cold that I just couldn't warm up. And once you're wet or cold, it's very challenging to warm up. And I had just broke into a building on Seymour street and got in there. And it, I mean, it, it was warmer, uh, but it wasn't great, but I did find some, you know, curtains and use those as blankets. And, uh, unfortunately when I was awoken, uh, the police, it was by the police and I was being arrested for, for break and enter and then taken to jail and, and, and put in city cells for, for, you know, the, I, I think they got me, it was like 11 o'clock in the morning, but I was released back into the cold, um, uh. later on that evening, uh, which to me, and I was just like, well, now I got, uh, and now I have to appear in court and I have to follow these bail conditions and, uh, I mean, it's such a terrible uh, system in place, and it still exists uh, like that today. Punished for trying to find a way to survive with nowhere to go is what that sounds like to me. It's just where where must this system change and shift in order to ensure that this be the last weather event that that leaves our most vulnerable portion of our community, our, our society, our fellow humans, how do we, how do we change this guy? Well, I I think you look at what, you know, the extreme weather shelters, the key word there is it's temporary. It doesn't, it's a bandaid. So it's not something where it's going to be like, you know, Oh, Hey, you're going to have warmth and and a place to live. No, it's take out temporary and build sustainable housing for people to have access to. And the, unfor- I, I can remember in the nineties when we were uh, squatting at the Woodward's building, you know, and yeah. the public is like the business associations, they're getting frustrated with us, pointing fingers at us. I remember I used to hear people drive by and yell, get a job or nobody cares about you anyway. You're ruining our city. It's like we point fingers at people who are homeless but we should be pointing fingers at the government that doesn't do anything to give people proper housing. And this is the most basic human right is, is housing for people. And yet we fail miserably at delivering that. So for example, last evening on my, on my social media, I was on my Twitter and somebody tagged me in having seen an elderly woman who had carved herself out a small corner of a parkade in a condo building out near Willowbrook. And mm-hmm. this, this person witnessed the police attend and have this elderly woman pack up her things. And, they, and, and the feeling was that the, the officials, the authorities were rather uncaring in doing so. And I don't want to cast any aspersions here. I didn't witness it per- personally. But that yeah. was what I was receiving from this individual who said, it, you know, this happened in Langley. It was at the Rockport. Um, and this woman, I mean, my my instinct was to say, do we know where she is? Can we get her a hotel? I'll pay for her hotel. Like there are people who really try so hard to help. Sarah Blythe comes to mind 
Uh, Mark yeah. Brand comes to mind. I mean, we can keep going. Uh, you know, Kelly White comes to mind. People who are literally frontlining it so hard, as hard as they possibly can, and yet, like you said, it's Band Aid City. What? Yeah. What must be yeah. done? Is it is it a political will? Like, it, does it does it take the municipal election come October fifteenth? Um, or, or is there something more we can do in a more immediate way? Is it provincial, municipal? I'm so confused, Guy. Honestly, I'm frustrated. Yeah, me too. I, I, I mean, literally, like, we've been in a housing crisis uh, for, for decades, and this is just compounding it now with weather conditions, uh, and we're, we're just seeing the tip of it. Um, you, you know, you have to demand the government to actually make change and to allocate properties to build housing on those properties. Look, you have the Balmoral that's empty and the region that's empty. How long is that going to sit there before we actually do something? And then, like, you know, the city says it takes 60 days. Well, heck, we'll be in the summer then, um, you know, by the time you can actually do something. It, it's, it's completely, like, appalling that, uh, you know, if the city needs to literally go buy more hotels then and put people in there to get them out of the cold um, because this can't continue because people will die. And I, I can even remember, we used to try to conjugate in, go, go out to on Davie street. They used to have a, a heated parking parkade uh, yeah. under the super value there. And we used to go there. I mean, I think they, you know, the security would fly in there and then they would tell us to leave and we'd go and we'd come back. And it's just this, you know, this constant cat and mouse game of them trying to chase you or move you around, uh, around the city where there's nowhere to go. It's like, stop pointing fingers at people who are struggling with homelessness and poverty and start actually supporting Helping. them and demand Yeah. And demand the government to, to give the people housing. Telling you to telling you to leave with nowhere to go is a huge statement. Guy, I want to keep on this. This is not just a snow day conversation. Uh, I think we should follow up. I think there, we let's come to the table with some ideas on this. Let's try and get some of our leaders to, to maybe join us in a conversation that's public enough that people can lean in and help as well. I appreciate your time as always. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me and have a great day. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith this week and next. Uh, Happy New Year's Eve, Eve to you. Uh, Going across the pond, it's almost New Year's Eve as we head to Denmark to connect with freelance journalists based in Denmark, formerly of right here in BC. Of course, you'll recognize the name Shane Woodford on the line with us. Hey, Shane. Hey, Jody. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. I have a keen eye on Denmark, uh, not just because I have family there, um, but also because I subscribe to your newsletter. And while it has been on pause for the past little bit so that you could take a little bit of time off, uh, the news cycle waits for no one. And I know that you are right on top of all things uh, happening in Denmark. Why why do you think Denmark has become such a hotspot? Yeah, well, I mean, Denmark isn't alone in being a hotspot. We're seeing um, mind-boggling numbers out of European countries all over the place. I mean, the UK is seeing uh, numbers that are just out of this world. Uh, I know just today, Italy exceeded 100,000 new daily cases for the first time ever. Spain's over 100,000. France exceeded 200,000 new infections yesterday. Uh, Here in Denmark, we have seen record highs virtually every day of the week, Monday to Friday, for the last two in a bit weeks. Uh, we saw a record high, 23,000 cases yesterday, another 21,000 today. So uh, the first two times ever in back-to-back days, seeing over 20,000 cases uh, in the pandemic. So 
uh, it is quite something. In Denmark's case specifically, Jody, I think it was uh, a little bit of arrogance or overconfidence. Uh, back in September 10th, we removed every single COVID restriction and returned to normal, made headlines around the world, as did Norway, Sweden, Finland. Um, and I think that that was, uh, in hindsight, probably a pretty big mistake. And it allowed, uh, at first, the Delta variant, uh, right. which we were in the middle of a horrendous Delta variant wave, and then the Omicron variant arrived uh, right at, at, in the middle of all of this already troubling situation, and numbers since have taken off. Now, while we have reintroduced a whole whack of restrictions, uh, we became reactionary when, for most of the pandemic, we were proactive, uh, and it allowed the virus, first Delta, then Omicron, to kind of reach a tipping point where we were racing after it, which is not a place where you want to be. No, and when you and I spoke back in August and we were talking about, I was blown away when you explained what it was like, how you had your vaccine passport and then you had your one for the EU, but you had your one that was local and you'd get your rapid tests yeah. and you'd go in your testing station pretty much at every street corner and, you know, access to testing was unbelievable and that gave more freedom to people to move around this back, of course, pre-Omicron. And one of the reasons that I like to touch base with you, not just because you're an excellent journalist, but also because Denmark is very similar in population and, and, and vibe, I guess, if you will, to, to British Columbia when it comes to it's sort of a, you, you can kind of give it a little bit of a litmus test while, you know, comparing yeah. BC to the, to the UK is a little bit more difficult to do. So let's compare mm-hmm. with regard to the tentative back to school plan right now in Denmark. What does that look like? Yeah, they uh, first off, they were sent home early for Christmas break uh, because of the pandemic situation. So they've been off a little longer than usual. Uh, They're going to go back tentatively for January 5th. That would be three days after what they would normally return on any usual year. Um, But that said, there's a couple of things in the wind. First off is the pandemic situation overall with record numbers uh, and all of that kind of thing. Going into the Christmas break, we were seeing uh, unbelievable infection numbers sweeping through schools and and children in general uh, from 19 years old and under, and especially the 5 to 11-year-old group, uh, where the numbers were just staggering. uh, And schools were being closed and classes were being sent home and all that kind of thing, which is part of the reason they sent them home early. So the overall pandemic situation is going to come into the decision-making process that is probably underway now and and will intensify in the next couple of days. Um, The other thing that they're doing to try and mitigate that, Jody, which I'm not sure is something BC is looking at or not, but Denmark has bought 65 million self-testing, COVID self-testing kits. Uh, And there's going to be some use for that in the hospital system and places like that. But a large chunk of those are being distributed to the different municipalities here in Denmark which will then turn around and send them either to the schools directly for older children to do themselves or for younger kids, including down to grade one. Uh, they'll go to the parents where the parents do COVID self-testing with the children at home. And that'll happen uh, for at least once a week, uh, possibly twice a week, depending on the infection situation in that municipality. For instance, if it's really high, then they're going to double up the weekly testing to try and screen it even further. Uh, but then again, I mean, who knows? If the overall epidemic situation is really bad, then then they could push it off. The other concerning factor is we're seeing uh, much lower vaccination uptake among children than uh, the Danish health authorities would like. And there's been some warning signs sent up uh, from the different health authorities saying that this is a concern and kind of casting doubt on whether they can go back to school with that lack of protection that a higher vaccination rate might bring. And that's a big piece of this. That was, you know, exactly where I'm going with the next question, because you just answered it. That vaccine piece is such a big part of this. You know, the uptake is going to impact the system 
in its entirety. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the the healthcare system in in Denmark with Omicron. Omicron makes up what percentage? Do you know what percentage it makes up of of the cases in Denmark right now? Yeah, as of yesterday, it was eighty percent of all sequence positive mm-hmm. tests. And, and keep in mind that we have a pretty good some on the situation thanks to a pretty massive testing protocol. So we're doing about half a million COVID tests every day. That's going to be cranked up overall capacity to 750,000 uh, as of January the 7th. And we sequence uh, over 80% of those each day. So wow. Denmark has a pretty good resource for seeing how things are spreading and what the situation on the ground is. It's invaluable. Uh, so it's 80% uh, as of yesterday of all sequence positive cases. And they did that, Jody, in stunning time. Uh, it took about a month from the first two cases that were uh, confirmed here in Denmark, November 26th, as we're talking, it's December 30th. Uh, and it's now, I mean, the absolute dominant, dominant COVID variant uh, in Denmark. And, uh, you know, it took Delta in order for Delta to kind of move in and take over and then completely eradicate the Alpha variant. That took about 18 or 19 weeks in comparison to about four weeks for the Omicron variant to give you some sense of just how How viciously infectious this thing is. Okay, so real-world data. Given what you just explained with regard to testing and the percentage of Omicron cases, when you're saying there are record new case numbers daily, what are Mm. hospitalizations and and what's the mortality rate like at this moment in Denmark? Yeah, so that's... Uh, I'll try and break this down a little bit because those aren't entirely clumped together because of the vaccination protection. Denmark's got over 80% of the population with one dose. We're approaching 80% with two. Uh, We've really thrown in every ounce of muscle we can to get third doses. So in the last three weeks alone, we've gone from about 10% of the population with a third booster dose. We're now approaching 50%. We'll probably hit that in the next few days. They have thrown just the kitchen sink in trying to get a third dose to people uh, once the Omicron variant arrived to try and up that protection. So uh, how that looks in the hospitalization front, it isn't so good at first blush because we're seeing numbers uh, exceeding 600 admissions as we're talking today. We're seeing sort of a hospitalization admission uh, curve that is beginning to parallel the worst one we had in the alpha variant. Uh, infection wave a year ago. Um, that said, there is a now disconnect, thank you to the vaccination coverage for uh, ICU capacity and then for mortality. Uh, so that has been sort of the kind of the silver lining or the little bit of good news amidst kind of the dark news. Um, the, the situation on the healthcare front uh, is further complicated, Jody, because it's not just COVID. Uh, we're seeing, and, and the other Nordic countries are seeing as well, sort of, I don't want to say a perfect storm, but we're seeing things pressing in from all sorts of different sides. And, you know, there's all these factors. For example, you know, it's been two years of the pandemic and healthcare workers have been under enormous amounts of stress and, and just working like crazy and uh, with no let up. And so now we're seeing to some degree in the different Nordic countries, uh, a certain percentage of the healthcare population or the staffing saying, you know what, I can't do this anymore. I'm out. Yeah. Uh, and then because of the pandemic situation, you can't just bring in people from other countries or, or that kind of thing to shore up. So you, you don't have an access to a larger sort of uh, B team that you could bring in. So now we're seeing in Denmark uh, a lot of sort of healthcare understaffing or short staffing that is causing additional problems. The other thing is we also have uh, what's called the RS virus. I'm not sure if you guys have it or not. I'm, I'm sure you might, you might have it, but it's a, a se- sort of a seasonal bug. Uh, like a rough cold or flu, but it really affects younger children uh, worse. Mm-hmm. And we saw 
Um, it arrived months earlier than it's ever been seen before. It's usually a winter bug. We saw it in the late summer, and we saw numbers that we've never seen before. And that meant hospitalizations, particularly of young children, uh, on top of the COVID stuff. So that was another dimension. And as you and I are speaking now, we're seeing a rising number, not super hardcore yet, but still a rising number of seasonal influenza cases. And there's been uh, some real concern over the last few months that because of the COVID pandemic and the washing of hands and, you know, the lack of social contact that we just haven't seen a seasonal flu in two years. And that, especially for younger people, means that their immune system hasn't seen it, hasn't sort of developed a little bit of natural immunity, uh, a little bit of added protection. And that means that the door is open for a pretty significant possible influenza wave. So we're starting to see those numbers rise. And the concern is if they really shoot up in the next month or two on top of the COVID and on top of everything else that we could really have a problem on our hands. But the hospital situation, uh, while there is a little bit of good news in ICU and especially on the mortality side, it's not so good on overall admissions. And therein lies the message of caution that we must heed here in British Columbia. When we talk about protecting our healthcare system, what you just laid out explains it in great detail. Shane, as always, yeah. I appreciate your time. Thank you for this. How do people read your newsletter? Sign up for it because I know I love it. <laughs> you can find me on Substack at Woodford in DK, or you can just uh, follow me on Twitter. And whenever I push one out, I push one out there. And that's at Woodford in DK on Twitter. Um, so yeah, uh, follow along if you can. It's great. And, uh, man, I uh, just encourage you guys back home to just stay as safe as possible because, uh, it's vicious and we're usually a couple of weeks ahead of you. And, mm. uh, I know the testing there is not the greatest and your ability to see what's going on, on the ground is not nearly as good as it is here in Denmark. And I can tell you Omicron is a serious, serious thing. So everybody back home, just buckle up and stay safe and try and get through the next few weeks, a uh, few months and, and get out the other side.